I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the IISS, and this is our house podcast, Sound Strategic, where we showcase the sparkly talents of our research team. And I have the great good fortune to have with me today Dr. Pierre Noel, who is the Senior Fellow for Economic and Energy Security. He uh, covers the markets, the innovation of green energy, what its political consequences will be throughout Asia. He's just finished a huge study on that. Um, and uh, in the aftermath of the uh, alleged Iranian strikes on Aramco facilities in Saudi Arabia, he has been splashing all over the news media. My favorite uh, quotation from him, I hope you don't mind, Pierre, me uh, introducing it, but Certainly it's not. so fabulous. He compared the reaction of Saudi Arabia to the strikes to uh, a quotation by de Gaulle of the French generals in when? 1940. 1940. Well, you say it. It's your magnificent quote. Go. Well, it's, it's a paraphrase. So it's not exactly a quote, but uh, the Saudis, Saudi Arabia lost in 30 minutes the war they had been preparing for, for 30 years. It's excellent. It's such a great parallel. And we are going to get to talk about the... Uh, the newsworthy story, but just in case that's not the one that you were going to focus on for our first question, what of your work is in the news that you particularly want people to understand and know about? So um, you mentioned the piece that, uh, the short piece that I wrote just after the uh, attack against the Saudi Abkhaz oil facility. That obviously is a, a nice, a nice peg for me uh, to try and make a few points, um, uh, but, but, but there, are, there are less, I would say, urgent uh, issues that are also uh, uh, topical and timely, and one of them is the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline between uh, Russia and Germany, which has become a real foreign policy topic, uh, one that is to some extent uh, polluting or uh, complicating security dialogue across the Atlantic between the US and its European allies, but also one that is that has impact on intra-European uh, uh, solidarity um, and, uh, and, and co cohesiveness. So that's another one. Let me, in, let me stop you right there before you, before you go on on that to say that um, listeners who want to hear a long play running gunfight that we had this morning at the Institute between Pierre Sarah Rain and Nick Redman, all with different perspectives on the geopolitics and geoeconomics of Nord Stream 2. There is video of it on the IISS website, and we'll link to it from here so you can hear more from Pierre on that. I'm going to drag you back to the subject of the strikes on the Aramco facilities, because I have had the pleasure, which our listeners may not yet have had, of hearing you talk through what this means for oil markets. Could you reprise a little bit of that for the listeners of Sound Strategic? Of course, and in the meantime, the market has continued to respond and actually uh, calmed down to uh, some extent. So the reason for that is that, uh, is that Saudi Aramco or the Saudi authorities <coughs> 
told the world that they would be able to repair a large fraction of the, uh, the facility quite quickly, much quicker than most people anticipated. So some of what I said uh, is probably now uh, overwhelmed by events. Uh, but, but essentially, nonetheless, it remains that it's a, it's a very big shock to the global oil system. Abkaik, the facility that was bombed, uh, is by far the most important piece of infrastructure in the global oil system. Wow. Uh, yes, because uh, about 75% of Saudi crude is processed through it. Uh, so it's, an extreme, it's a point of extreme concentration in the largest oil producing country in the world. Hmm. Um, I think that only the Strait of Hormuz is more systemically important to the oil market. Interesting. Um, uh, the, 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 the bombing of Abkaik removed from the market immediately uh, 5 million barrels a day, which is half of Saudi crude oil production. It's a very, it's a very large, it's, if it was an oil producer, it would be the third biggest in the world. Huh. That was knocked out uh, immediately. Yeah. Uh, this is huge. And this is a third, just to give a bit of context, this is a third of all the oil that flows through the Strait of Hormuz every day. Hmm. Um, in, terms of, in terms of globally traded oil, it's uh, 7.5 to 8% of total, you know, so it's, it's, so it's, a, very large, it's a very large shock to, to the oil market. Mm -hmm. I have been surprised at how well the Saudi government has been responding to this. I would not have bet my money that the Saudis would do actually any of the four or five things that it looks to me that they're doing well. So first, uh, they didn't start parading uh, the leadership out to threaten Iran. They are waiting until they, until the, they're waiting to take a considered reaction, let me say. The second thing that impressed me was the amount of information they put in the public realm about the attacks. So the MOD, uh, you know, laying out the debris that they had found, giving their theory of the case, actually trying to win the argument on the intelligence about it being an Iranian attack, not just an Iranian-directed attack. The third thing I thought was impressive was they very quickly joined the maritime protection force that U.S. CENTCOM is putting together, which they hadn't done before. Uh, they invited U.N. inspectors in to explore the facilities, and so they're going to international institutions for validation of their perspective or their theory of the case about what happened. Um, and if Saudi news reports are to be believed, they're their first form of retaliation has been against IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Forces, Iranian forces, operating with militia in Syria, because Syria is a much more important theater of Iranian operations than is Yemen. It, by not attacking Iranian territory, the Saudis would limit the escalation potential while still sending a very important message to the Iranians. And then lastly, the point that you made, which is uh, if it's true, they can actually reconstitute uh, the facilities and get oil flowing again, that would be a huge uh, sign of their resilience. Mm -hmm. And as you said, that's what drove oil prices back down. 
How about long-term consequences of this? Yes, uh, I was about to come to this. Uh, just one point uh, to on, on the last the last point you made. Um, you know, it looks like it's not my area of expertise. Forgive me if I'm erring a bit, but it looks like there was uh, a bit of a malfunctioning to uh, perhaps uh, put it like that of their air defense uh, systems or at least if not malfunctioning at least the attack revealed some pretty uh, uh, concerning holes if you want in the in the air defense system so so if they were able to rebuild quickly it's very important because it's sort of it's sort of uh, compensates if you want it heals the damage that was done to their reputation you know if it would prove that they had also built enough maybe um, uh, duplication of facilities inside Apkai so that they can quite quickly redirect uh, the, the flow of crudes or products uh, mm -hmm. or gas to other parts of the system that may not have been impacted you know so I'm not quite sure technically what is actually being done, but if it's true that they can rebuild 75% of it in a matter of of weeks, then I think it it, it reestablishes to some extent their reputation as a as a reliable, secure supplier of oil. The long-term consequences, it's a very good question. Um, you know, some people, some people who have access to information that I don't have say that uh, indeed they should be able to, to uh, recover about 3 million barrels a day out of the five that were lost very quickly, but that they would remain short of between one and two million mm. barrels a day for a much longer period of time. I think that's quite problematic. I mean, two million barrels a day uh, at $50 per barrel or, you know, over over it is worth 40 billion a year wow uh, yes 40 billion a year I guess if you remove the cost of the war in Yemen is basically the Saudi defense budget mm. uh, so you're talking about you know pretty consequential financial implications and when this when Saudi oil comes back to the market if there has been a long period of time uh, of underproduction they may find themselves in a situation where all other producers will have increased their supply. Right. Because of higher prices, demand will have gone down somewhat. And therefore, the Saudis may have to let global prices go down quite significantly to regain market share, which is very painful for them to do. Um, mm. so, 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 yes, it's, it, so, so rebuilding quickly is really, really, really important for them. And how about for the possibility of taking Aramco public or partially public? Uh, you know, Corey, from previous discussions uh, we had that I'm somewhat skeptical. Um, I'm somewhat I've, I've been somewhat skeptical f since the, the, the beginning of, uh, since they floated this idea. Now, the recent events certainly do not help them in creating confidence with uh, international investors uh, that this is something they want to own, okay? Mm -hmm. Knowing that, uh, the exposure you get by buying a share of Aramco, the exposure to essentially you know, rising oil prices, you can have it by investing in perhaps 
more secure assets. Mm. Uh, the upside might be less important because the cost of other producers would be much higher than the Saudis. But uh, the, the security, uh, the security risk that has been highlighted with such crudeness by the events that we've just uh, gone through certainly will be will weigh into the calculations of, of yeah. investors. So it doesn't help. Yeah. It does. It doesn't help. It does bring to mind uh, our Director General John Chipman's article in Harvard Business Review a couple of years ago about the need for companies to do geopolitical due diligence and to think about the effect of these uh, of foreign policy and national security events on their uh, operations. How did you get interested in this work? Unplanned series of, of, of events, uh, I guess, towards the end of my undergraduate studies, I discovered energy as part of a, of a small research project that I, that I was doing um, and got interested in it to the point that I applied for a you know, postgraduate um, scholarship uh, in this field and, and I, I got it. At the judge school, it. business school at Cambridge, right? No, at the time, no. I, uh, at the time I was in Grenoble in France. Ah. Um, yeah, that's where I did most of my studies. Uh, Cambridge is actually a place where I worked post PhD. Okay. Yeah. Um, and 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 favorite book in the field? I've got two. two okay. Quotes. Is that okay, Cora? Yes, of course. <laughs> An old one. And God has many favorites, and so we may as well. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, a very old one, and a, and a, and a much newer one. And uh, the, the very old one is. A classic in the field. It's called the Economics of Petroleum of the Petroleum Market by Maurice Edelman, an MIT economics professor who died a few years ago. 1972. Uh, nobody reads that anymore. I love this book. I actually have a physical copy of it. It's very rare now. And it's the book that actually took me out of the strictly geopolitical view of energy and taught me to start with the markets and then you bring the markets back into their geopolitical oh, environment. Oh, that's a great, you know, methodologically, that's, that's the best practice. Uh, exactly. And, um, and uh, so I go back to it quite regularly and it's, it's, very, it's, it's very well written on top of that. Um, the, the new one, the newer one, is a book by David Mackay, a physics professor at Cambridge who also unfortunately died at a much younger age of, of cancer a few years ago. He was um, the chief scientific advisor to the Department of Energy and Climate Change in the UK um, on the last few years of his life. And he wrote this absolutely fantastic book called uh, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, a great title. And it's a masterpiece of education in, I would say, uh, the physics of energy, as much as it matters to the understanding of, uh, you know, of the energy systems and energy debates for citizens like you and I, who have no, not been trained as, a, as, a, as physicists. It's 
it's absolutely remarkable in the way he changes your perspective on everything related to energy and especially the uh, aspirations we have to transition to cleaner energy systems to try and uh, save the planet from, from climate change. Uh, this is a fantastic book, which uh, uh, cherry on the cake is available for free on the internet. Yahoo! And you wanted it like you wanted it like like that. Those are two excellent suggestions, and I loved your description of them. How about the conventional wisdom in your field that's wrong? The thing that people say as though you know it's an obvious point, and you grind your teeth because it's not true. Yes. Well, perhaps. Perhaps I could highlight this, uh, these notions of energy dependence or independence. There's really a lot of um, uh, confusions or even nonsense that is, has been said uh, along these lines for a very long time. Uh, the fact that you import your energy is absolutely not in itself a cause for energy insecurity put it differently it is not an energy security problem in itself to be import dependent in it really depends on uh, it doesn't really depends on which country you import from actually it depends on the how the markets that uh, that that you source your energy from do do function are they are, are they well supplied or supplied by a diverse group of of, uh, of suppliers is there is there concentration of is there market power in this market? Is there uh, uh, a spare capacity in the infrastructure? I mean, all of that matters. The fact that you import in itself is, is irrelevant. There's a flip side to it. So people are it. focusing on the wrong statistic, well, which absolutely, is absolutely. whether and how much you import rather than diversity of sourcing and other things. And the way the market work and, uh, works. And you, you can go to all the attempts that have been made at measuring energy security you know creating these indices that mix different things and weigh different things uh, together and all of them have a big weight on whether you're import dependent which i think is huh. quite remarkable because it's not i think uh, borne by uh, evidence and research there's a flip side to this which is that there's no intrinsic value to energy independence and here mm -hmm. you can connect to the, the american contemporary discussion you know and mm -hmm. trump as the trump administration and trump trump himself have made a big thing of the fact that the u.s has dramatically reduced its uh, oil imports which has positive benefits brings benefits to the u.s and uh, we could discuss that but it actually doesn't really change the exposure of the u.s economy to the oil market mm. if the price of oil goes up it goes up in the u.s irrespective of how dependent or independent they are I know it's counterintuitive, but it's absolutely true and very, very strongly uh, supported by evidence. Okay, Pierre, I have to tell you, I think as one of our 60th anniversary research and development appeal projects, you ought to come up with a better index for energy security. And the uh, rich people who are listening to us <laughs> will send me emails to uh, offer money to support Absolutely. I think that's a good thing. Okay, what is your favorite work that you've ever done? The stuff you like best and that you want people to know, uh, to start as they learn about your work, start here. 
number one would be my, my PhD dissertation, but I will not suggest that listeners uh, try, to, <laughs> try to, to get it and read it. Uh, uh, j jokes apart, uh, the, I think the most, uh, probably the best, certainly the most influential paper I, I ever wrote was a paper I wrote for the European Council on Foreign Relations mm -hmm. in November 2008, was the uh, publication date, just before the big gas supply crisis um, in Europe that was triggered by the uh, escalation in Russia-Ukraine gas dispute. And uh, this paper, which was titled Beyond Dependence, illustrated exactly what we've talked about uh, uh, just before, which is that the key to dramatically improving Europe's energy or gas security was not about reducing the amount of gas we get from Russia. It was about changing the way the European gas market works mm -hmm. so that the people who have small gas markets highly reliant on Russia in Central and Eastern Europe could not be held hostage uh, to, to this, to this, de to this uh, dependence you know, by Russia. That the gas relationship with Russia would not offer Moscow any leverage or any pressure, um, ability to pressure these countries in their foreign policy choices because uh, they, could, they would be able to substitute Russian gas with gas coming from elsewhere. And when I wrote that, the, uh, the level of gas market integration in Europe was very low. So it was a, it was a, a, a bold proposition which was very original at the time and and has come into being exactly absolutely so so it's a source of great satisfaction this this paper congratulations i, I wish think i wish great. i had more of those <laughs> don't we all so um our last question i feel like um uh, before I get to, I want to tell our listeners that if you are not already uh, uh, readers, what do we call it for, for data visualizations, uh, consumers of Pierre's excellent work, he does a weekly, uh, he does a weekly posting called Powerlines on the IISS website, and what it does is presents key data driving global energy strategy, security, and geopolitics. It is one of my very favorite things we do in this institution, and I love the way you let the data speak. That is, you don't append long, detailed descriptions. You, you briefly, you fire a brief salvo that lets us engage the data. I think it's fabulous, and I love that it was your idea to start it. I think it's a best practice I'm gonna force on everybody in the institution. Given how natural a data producer and consumer you are, and somebody who already creates a weekly data visualization, I'm intensely curious to know what your favorite data visualization is. Yes, I, there's one that really struck me uh, recently, and uh, it was a, a chart put together by um, Richard Newell. Richard is a, a, a very prominent energy economist um, in the US. He's now the president of Resources for the Future, being, I think, the, one of the very best, if not the best, uh, energy and environment think tank in the world. Wow. Uh, based in Washington, yes, he, he was a professor. Um, he was a professor at Duke for a long time, but now he's at RFF. 
Uh, and Richard put together a very simple graph that shows that ever since the Industrial Revolution, there has never been an energy transition in the sense that no energy source has ever gone down. So all the energy sources that the world has you know, started to consume, so a lot of them have plateaued, okay? Uh, but but, but they've, never gone, they've, never been, they've never gone down. So they're sort of, we, we find new sources to meet new needs, but nothing has ever gone down, which is, when you think of it, extraordinary. Even wood, you know, wood energy, which is what, you know, the, fir you know, the first human beings in caves, you know, were using to heat themselves, their yeah. homes, so to speak. We, we, we still consume we still consume as much wood energy as we did when, when, it, when it peaked, when it reached its maximum. Before which is we mined coal. Which is before we mined coal. And right. coal has never gone down. Coal has gone down in some countries, but globally coal has, has not started to go down. Oil has never gone down. So I think it's extraordinary because this graph destroys this myth that we're sort of moving from one source of energy to another. We're actually adding new sources and in some usages or some geographies, we do, of course, shift. Mm -hmm. But in aggregate, in the world, nothing has ever gone down. It's an extraordinary chart, really. That's really interesting. And quite concerning as well. So consumption is advancing at such a pace that yeah. even with adding all sorts of new means of energy, nothing, no category of energy has been reduced. Yes. That is really interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to thank you, Pierre, for teaching us about both the short-term and the long-term consequences of the attack on the Aramco facilities for two great books that I'm going to go read, uh, Edelman's Economy of the Oil Market and David McKay's Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air for um, telling me that, telling us all that energy dependence is a chimera. It's not the right metric. It's not the statistic we should look to. Um, and for drawing your attention, our attention to your terrific ECFR beyond dependence that argues that changing the EU gas market to reduce hostage taking prospects by energy providers uh, needed to be done. And you called that in 2008 and it became policy, which is fabulous. And finally, for showing us Richard Newell's uh, terrific data visualization, uh, exploding the notion that there has been a transition from one type of energy to another, rather than just much greater acquisition of diverse means. Pierre Noel, thank you for the excellent work you do for the IISS, and thank you for this education today. 